welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infield recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? This episode is a panel session recorded live in Hong Kong at IBM. It's a panel session of experts without any safety net who talk frankly about design in the boardroom. Welcome to Design in the Boardroom. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and we're here in Hong Kong at IBM, and we're talking about design in the boardroom with four amazing panellists here. Tonight, we have Michael Tam, the Chief Creative Catalyst from IBM IX. Please, round of applause, audience, for Michael. Next is Bob Neville, the Global Retail Creative Director for New Balance. Please, round of applause for Bob. <laughs> Following that is Hamaxi Irani, Head of UX and Design, Seekers uh, Asia. And Hamaxi, I believe you're looking for, for talent, is that right? Yes, we're always looking for talent Fantastic. all across Asia. Anybody who wants to work for Hamaxi, applaud, please. <laughs> And finally on our panel here tonight is Andrew Mead, the Chief Architect of the MTR Corporation. Please, round of applause for Andrew. <laughs> so audience, we're going to have a conversation which are based on a whole range of questions here for our panellists, which have to do with how is design working as they manage up in their organisation? Are they being asked to go manage down, that the board is being smart enough to ask them to go do things which actually comes from a design language? Where are they up to in the sophistication of the culture inside the organisation? What have they done to grow that culture inside the organisation? Where have they had wins? What sort of tools have they put into the boardroom? And also, what has been the greatest success that they've had changing an organisation's economic outcomes by using design? And it may not be their current organisation. So let's get into our panellists here. Bob, so why don't you help us understand, because New Balance is a very interesting beast, because you've got a very, very smart shareholder, or it's a single shareholder, I believe, and, uh, and that he's understanding how design is able to go affect the company from every day, isn't he? Yeah, sure. Just, just to give a bit, of, a bit of background to New Balance, um, New Balance actually consists of a number of brands. Um, it en encompasses properties like you know, Liverpool Football Club, um, so there's there's a number of quite high profile properties that we work on and on, on and with, um, but the interesting situation we're in is we're family owned. Jim Davis and his wife Anne that own the the business. Um, yeah, he did some of the most significant sportswear and footwear design innovations in the history of sportswear. The first shoe to sell for more than 50 US dollars, the first shoe to sell for more than 100 US dollars, um, shoes, um, the first million dollar deal for an NBA athlete was was by New Balance and Jim Davis. Um, we all know the Nike uh, Air Jordan Jumpman logo. What a lot of people don't know is that when that picture was taken, he didn't actually have a Nike contract. Uh, so he was actually wearing New Balance shoes in that logo. Um, so, so I'm working for a guy, which I absolutely love, um, that, that has really innovated and is the sportswear industry. So, you know, design at board level, it's very much there, but at the same time, you need to be part of a team, and that's finance, that's HR, there's, there's all these other disciplines. So I wouldn't want to be doing finance, and I wouldn't want finance to be doing design. So, Bob, to help the rest of the board members, what sorts of tools have you been able to build in a New Balance to help them to understand the design language and also the design outcomes that you're creating for the economics of the organisation? So th there's a number of things that, we, that we've done and we use some very basic um, technology and skills and we use some sort of more complicated um, digital solutions. But, but ultimately, we use a number of KPIs. You know, are we selling stuff? 
but but also you know what I'm also interested in is what didn't we sell? You know how are the consumers interacting with our products in a space? Um, so one of the things that we you know we do we've got computer programs that can predict what the human eye or the human being is going to look at and how they're going to interact with a product or a space, um, but at the same time. Just outside Shanghai, we've got a pretty large environment. Um, it, it's it's a it's a massive massive space where we can build stuff. Whatever we want to build, we've got metalwork facilities, all sorts of things there, and we can walk people in and we can stand them in an environment and we can talk about light levels, colors of light, all sorts of human you know, emotions connected with a product in that space or the space itself. So we use some extreme sort of modern technology and at the same time some very basic um, putting a human being in a space and see how they react or how that product uh, fits. So what I like about that set of answers there is that you're part of the 360 degree management of, of the company. It isn't the designers tried to be in its own enclave. You've worked out how to go and support finance to work out how to support inventory management. And that seems to be a great integrated strategy because I've seen some organisations that have struggled because they've tried to create a separate culture rather than working out how to go support the overall enterprise. I, I would say that something that's really, really important is that ultimately all of us here in some shape or form are designing something for human beings, whether that's something that goes on your foot or on your back, or it's something a human being is going to move through. So it's, yeah, the, the customer and who you're designing for is, is really, really crucial. You know, that's, that's one thing. Um, so ultimately for us as a brand, you know, if we don't have products that sell, the rest of it doesn't matter. But at the same time, I need the finance department, I need the sales department, I need the sales associates in a store. We're all codependent on the success of each other to make something work. So I, th I think there's a mistake that could be made at, at any point where any one uh, discipline within a, a multinational organization thinks it's more important than another. Um, so design is important, but I can't do what I, you know, I do without the support of all these other disciplines. So. Um, I, I often make the comment that everybody's prepared to give a view and opinion about something that I and my team design. Um, but at the same time, I always turn around and sort of say, when it comes to finance and spreadsheets, you know, we don't sit there and say, well, I've got a slightly different view on that. It's like, well, the finance guys do the finance bits and no one's questions it. But if I turn around and say something should be green, you get every man and his dog giving a view and opinion. Um, and that's just something that's, I don't know if it's just me, but it's happened over my 25-year career on a regular basis. So, but we're going to, um, in a moment, cross over to Hamaxi, who will be talking around digital products that are, that are at Seek. And in the digital realm, we always talk about tech debt. But there's also experience debt and there's also design debt that's out there, things that you know that aren't necessarily right, but you need to get around to sort them out. I remember we had a chat about one of the stores that I went past here in Hong Kong and uh, you said, yep, it's on the program to go and actually be upgraded. And that to me is an example of the design debt or the experience debt that's inside the organisation. It's interesting when you start using the same sorts of language that's used in digital products to think about a physical store. You're acknowledging that it may not be the current series. You're acknowledging that it may need to be upgraded. But that doesn't mean you can get around to it immediately. And digital products are no different there. So it's going to be interesting going and seeing where some of those correlations are because I think for yourself and also for Andrew, there's obviously some journey debt that's out there inside the MTR. It doesn't mean that you can get to immediately, but you have to work out how to prioritise it. So Hamaxi, help us out here a little bit with, with the idea of UX, UI, Seek Asia, and then pushing design up into the organisation so that they understand how you're making the company even more amazing and magnificent. Wow, that's that's a lot to cover. Um, so for, for those who don't know, Seek is essentially, it's an Australian parent company. It's an employment, two-sided employment marketplace. And um, the parent company is on, in Australia where the brand is Seek. We also have an aggregator brand called Jora. 
through acquisition, uh, there are now brands represented in uh, Mexico, Brazil, all of Southeast Asia under the brands Job Street and Jobs DB, which are, might be the ones you're more familiar with, and across China as well. And I think six or seven different cities under the brand Xiaopin. So it's a it's a very complex business model. Uh, we were talking about scale before. There's the complexities of multiple brands, multiple platforms, multiple sort of countries, cultures, compliance, all of those things that we're dealing with. And uh, when you add all of that up, including the progression of acquisition and combining platforms and so on, when you talked about tech debt, I did a little... Um, a little kind of like sigh because that's just a natural part of what is going to occur. And and one of the things that we that we want to see achieve when a merger and acquisition process has taken place is that we want to find process efficiencies that are in there. So by being able to go and work out how do you take a, an experience that's working in one of those products and work out how to migrate that across into the mother platform and get the, get the efficiencies that are happening there, that's where some of the opportunity is for Seek. But that's also a multi-year project of working out how do you go and rather than give interface shock to people in the system, that you actually roll it out progressively so that they don't actually think they're on a different platform. They, Whichever one of those brands it is, that they've got a good understanding that they're still with the same organisation. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we have to tread very carefully with, inc including the brand and what we do with the brand. So uh, the actual experience, the product, down to functionality level, um, tone of voice, even the brand, all of those things we have to be very careful in terms of how we actually amalgamate them and then how, how do we roll it out step by step because as much as we have to be sensible and careful about how we adopt that, we also have to be smart in terms of the technology um, and the efficiency of the technology. At the same time, you can't afford to go too slowly because once you start to change something, you're starting to create expectations around the experience that people expect to see. Any change signals that something different is coming. So we can't be too slow in that either. You have to adapt quite fast. I wanted to share with you a little story from uh, eBay eBay had a, a disaster, a rebranding digital uh, disaster happen in 2012, 2013. Twitter was relatively new and people had just learned how to be outraged. And uh, eBay went and changed their logo colour. Outrage! And there was, you've got to change it back. And they had to roll the, the brand change back. But what the audience didn't know was for the next year, every day the colour of the logo was just changing a little bit, so over 12 months, that they actually got to where they wanted to get to. So sometimes the idea of trying to roll out a change is that we can shock people. And I think we've seen, you know, if you get caught with uh, people being irate in you, sometimes it's best to acquiesce. But overall the strategy was they knew that they needed to have a different brand. They knew they had to roll it out incrementally. And in the case of a digital product, they were able to do that daily and nobody knew that the frog was in the water and, and, and it was boiling away. So, you know, there's some of, the, some of the differences, I'd say, between a physical product like a New Balance where changing your colours every day would mean that you'd have stock uh, that actually had different colouring on boxes. But definitely with digital products, we know how to go roll these things out incrementally and make those new experiences that are there. Andrew, I want to have a bit of a chat about MTR then, because MTR, it's a fantastic service, always seems to run reliably whenever I've taken it, but um, you've had a, a, run, a heap of changes that have taken place inside the network, and I suppose many people wouldn't see those experience changes that are happening because they're relatively incremental, aren't they? Yeah, um, so MTR this year is celebrating its 40th year. Um, Come on, so have our round of applause for a 40-year-old. Hey, hey! Uh, I, I'm only six with MTR, but I've been, I've been designing metro stations for, for a lot more than that. And it's interesting that when it started out, um, it was a pretty basic offering. Um, it just moved people around in terms of the stations and, and we consider our, our heritage stations now the mosaic tiles, the colours, the calligraphy. Um, and of course over the years customer expectations have risen. Um, and one of the interesting things I always think um, is, is 
you compare with both Singapore and Hong Kong. Metros that were designed in the 1980s were both designed without toilets in them and without lifts in them. And it wasn't as if people didn't need to pee uh, back then, and it wasn't as if lifts hadn't been invented and old people hadn't been invented. But they had this idea that it was mass transit and that we weren't going to cater for those segments of society. Oh, so it was mass transit for people who weren't aged and didn't need to pee? Yeah. Okay. That kind of sounds like a pretty good strategy there. 40 years ago. We've, 40 in, we've got a bit more enlightened since then. <laughs> so, so something that interests me about, about a train network is you have to design for everybody, all socioeconomic groups, all linguistic groups, all cognitive capacity groups, all mobility groups. That is some of the most inclusive design that you can go do. And I think for everybody it's worthwhile to understand how does somebody like the MTR go change the in-station experience, the journey experience, the ticketing experience, the information experience. I, um, I was uh, coming out of a station today and there was a hoarding up to for some work that was being done on one of the escalators. And as I came up the escalator that I was on, it was telling me this story in a whole range of different chapters there. I think I, I'll, I'll try and publish the photos if they're not too blurry that I took there, or maybe Andrew's got photos he can supply. But it was a really interesting communication. It was a little bites that helped me go understand what was happening here. And by the end of the escalator ride, I felt a little bit more intelligent and I was a little bit more patient with what was happening. And I think that's a really important process, working out how to tell stories and to make sure that people feel engaged and that they're informed. And that must be very challenging for you because you have so many programs of work that are going on and working out how to go and keep that communication going. Well, it's interesting you, you talk about that one because that is one of our relatively new programs. Um, um, you know, the, the railway is, to say, 40 years old, and the escalator replacement program, our escalators go down for maintenance on a monthly basis just for a simple check. But when we need to rebuild them, they're like two months or so. And so we decided a communication plan based around simple facts, how long they've been moving, how fast they move, how many parts are being replaced, et cetera, et cetera, to give people a, a, a bit of the human side of, of the metro. Um, People just expect it to work 24-7, be there without fail, and which 99.9% .9 of the time we always do. But the, behind the scenes, there is a lot of work that goes on, most of it outside of operation hours. But when we're maintaining an escalator and we have to move people around in different ways in the station, communication is a real key. And if you can communicate them on that moment of walking on an escalator, then that's a great way of actually connecting with them in that sm small moment that you get to pause in otherwise what is a very busy environment. And so that's kind of taken uh, some of the uh, Olympic diving experience. Uh, who's, who's watched the Olympics every four years and not understood a thing about diving and then half an hour later you're an expert whether it was a big splash or not? I know I'm one of those people. And every four years I remember, oh, that's a three-and-a-half-degree twist pike. But I don't know that at the beginning. I know that because I'm gently introduced to these very complex concepts and they're done in a graceful way that allows me to become the expert through a simple communication process. So that's fantastic that you're working out how to communicate so that there's a, a compact between the public, they need reliable escalators, safe escalators, and you need to be able to go do the work that you're doing and you need to have that accommodation. So that no doubt will be improving people's satisfaction on the network. I certainly hope so. Michael, let's go have a little chat here about IBM IX, you get, you get to go see a whole range of different clients and you get to go work on, on projects that are very varied and many. So how often do you get to go see the board or are you seeing managers who have made a promise to the board or have been told to do something by the board and then you have to go affect it for them? Or do you get to actually have that interface with, with board members? Well, we get to see both um, some projects, luckily enough, we get to meet the, um, uh, the key owner. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we go through multiple of uh, meetings to gauge and guess what the, uh, the final decision maker's uh, real intention is. So um, I guess the answer is both and, and we, you can never really get a guarantee uh, you know, the kind of outcome you get. So it's all about asking the right questions. I'm an old creative director from advertising and so I, I used to get to go and meet boards all the time. 
And there was basically a, a job that we had to do, which was that we had to get them confident that they would allow us to mess around inside their company. But the things we proposed them was never what was going to be executed. It was always that we had to just work out how to go get their confidence rather than actually get their collaboration. And I think that's changed now where we're seeing people who want to collaborate and they want to understand what's happening. So those tools that you need to be able to report back, there has to be a lot more transparency. And yesterday I was at an animation studio where I saw possibly the most interesting annual report that I've ever seen. I've seen the MTR's annual report, which is actually an animated video. I can't tell you the figures, but they looked pretty impressive. But what was interesting there was it was being used as a communication tool because who needs to go read the, the accountant's report when what you want to hear is how many journeys, how much more confidence in the network, how, many, how are we performing and what's the story that's going on with our community. And that was so easily defined in this animated video that was using information graphics, it was engaging and it made it interesting. And when I went and asked the animation studio that were doing it, have they done this before? They'd done one for the Hong Kong Airport Authority. And what was interesting for the Airport Authority, it was very difficult for them to get dimensionality behind the sustainability initiatives that they had. And when they used the video, they were able to get a lot more dimensionality behind the idea of waste initiatives and reduction. And all of a sudden, something was just a number in a spreadsheet was coming to life. And so I think that visual storytelling is one of those interesting ways to go and actually manage up to tell people about the success and the project outcomes that are there. Andrew, when you see the annual report, I know you're going to be absolutely enthralled. This is really great guy in a high-vis vest. I think he might have been modelled on you. OK. I look forward to it. Yeah, you. I don't, I'm not sure when it's out, but uh, it might be like the Avengers movie where people line up around the corner to go see the MTR report. It is a cracker. You really should take a look at it. So, Bob, I'm interested from you, whether it's both New Balance or whether it was in a different stage in your life, what's been one of the most breakthrough initiatives that you've been able to go do that has helped to accelerate the economic out outcomes for an organisation? Is there one that comes to mind to you where you go, I'll tell you what, we weren't confident, but when we went and did it, it was amazing how it communicated the results that we got. Is there something that jumps out? Yeah, I would say with the New Balance brand, you know, one of the challenges we had, um, I've been working in Asia and China since the late 80s, early 90s. Um, opened up some of the first sports retail in China in the early 90s, which was really exciting. Um, but my job I see as a designer, as a, as a storyteller, as a brand storyteller and bringing that, that story to life and informing people about that brand and what it stands for. And one of the challenges we had uh, with the New Balance brand is that in China, we were considered uh, a second tier local Chinese brand um, because of the way the name was translated. And I've had a number of conversations um, even very recently about some of the, um, we call them parasite brands, the counterfeit brands that are out there and about what they do for the brand or they don't do for the brands, I should say. And what we found in the about 2008, some of the Chinese brands, they had more English in their stores and on their facades than we did. Um, they were able to adapt their logos and the way they presented themselves let's say very closely to some of the big global international brands. I don't want to say they were copying, but it was very close. Whereas what we were trying to do was localize, localize ourselves far too much. So we had no English in our stores. There was nothing told about our story. So, you know, as, as the innovator of the sports footwear industry, which is what New Balance is, we're trying to sell made in UK shoes for 2000 renminbi. And we're finding around the corner a Chinese brand, pretty big Chinese brand, is selling a shoe that, let's say, is modelled on our shoe, but they're selling it for for um, 300 renminbi. Um, and we can't sell our products. We can't get our brand in the right place. And that's all because people didn't know who we were or what we stood for. So 2008, um, we turned around and I, I just sort of said, you know, Confucius said, consider the past and you'll see the future or you'll understand the future. So my job was to turn around and sort of say, you know, New Balance was founded 
by a British guy, like all great things are founded by British people. And um, he noticed how chickens walked with perfect balance on their three toes. So he developed an arch support that then started the whole new balance, which is, comes from an arch support. Um, so it started a whole story. So I turned around and said, we need to tell that story. So we started, I, I'd literally go around with real chicken's feet in my pockets. But um, from that one store in Chen Men Avenue, just out off, off of Tiananmen Square, um, that, that story, a very small store, 180 um, square meters, it generated um, 5 million US dollars worth of media and PR globally in four months. And we spent 150,000 on doing the whole thing. Um, so it, it blew up in a viral way. And the, the numbers, the commercial numbers, which I won't go into here, um, multiplied drastically over the following, you know, the following years. So storytelling, you know, it com you know, converted into commercial reality. And, and so what I really like about that story is that there's a creative proposition there. It's an idea. And the idea could have failed or it could have succeeded, but you need to keep coming up with those ideas. It's not because you went out and asked people did they needed a different story that talked about chicken's feet and arches. It was actually the creative team came up with it. And so a little bit of advice that I have for people who are working in, in, in design studios, design departments is... Not everything is going to come out of A-B testing. Not everything is going to come out of market research. Sometimes you've got to go and just make an, an awesome proposition and you can have phenomenal results. One of the problems that I see is that people will turn around and that they'll actually just, they'll go with a single silver bullet shot. And I think probably when you went and did that, it was going to be one strategy to go deal with this rather than the only strategy that you had. It's fantastic that it yielded for you, but it's the idea that would have been part of a range of tools that you had. But you need to be bold sometimes. And you need to surprise both yourself, your customers and the board by something that just translates and cuts through. Fantastic story. How about you, Hamaxi? What have you had that's actually surprised you in how it's helped the organisation get some results? So I guess things, uh, timing's still a bit fresh for us right now at Seekasia. Uh, I feel like saying, ask me this question in 10 months and hopefully I'm going to have a couple of really good success stories <laughs> to share uh, because we're sort of, uh, we've been very much in discover mode. We've been building a lot of information, foresight, ideas, and I feel like, I hope we're on the pre precipice of now starting to actually make so effect and, and change. I, with okay. I'm going to help you out here because you're being such a good corporate player there. But I think Seek Asia put you in the role because you'd done some amazing things before you got to Seek. So I, I don't know what you're thinking of, but I was going to actually <laughs> share one example, which I, I won't share the company, but in a past uh, in-house product company, uh, essentially, and this is going back about 10 years now, so we were we were asked to, to execute a pilot. Uh, the company was quite risk-averse, I would say. It was a very uh, financially heavy uh, product model, very tiered, very structured, very bureaucratic company. Can we just test the temperature here? Who works for one of those companies that's uh, maybe a little bit uh, constrained on being adventurous? A show of hands from the audience? Oh, gosh. They're not a highly interactive wow, audience, are they? So you're all working for agile, really progressive organisations that let you do whatever you want to do at any stage. So let's test the temperature of the audience here. So who's working for an organisation that actually might be a little bit conservative, maybe not letting you do everything that you want to go do? Now remember, it's audio. There's nobody can see if your hand's going up. Okay, so that was a much better response, an honest response. Yeah, I even work for one of those organisations here, yeah? and I own the thing. So, you know, I know that we do conservative things, and my, and my team go, why the hell are you doing that? So I don't know why, but it just feels like the right thing. And I know I'm probably doing things in my own worst interest, but at the other times I go to do very courageous and bold things which are in my own best interest. So organisations uh, right across the world are going to have those challenges there. So let's go back to your story, Hamaxi. We're, we're in an organisation which has a tiered product arrangement. It's actually a little bit frightened to go take a courageous step. And then you've popped into the room and you've done what? Uh, so we had a team, we actually did a pilot. 
Um, and the pilot was a controlled pilot, uh, fixed amount of time, geographically constrained, uh, all that sort of stuff. But to be able to execute this pilot, we actually had to rebrand. We had to go forward with the vanilla brand because the brand we were working with had, as, as organizations like this do, the brand carried a lot of baggage with it as well. So to go in with a completely different product model that shook up everything, the experience, the finance, the tier, the, the risk, all those sorts of things naturally was going to have impact both within the organization but also with the customers that we were trialing it with. So we went and we did this pilot. It was across about three months. Uh, like I said, it flipped the product model completely on its head. It went from a completely business-driven product model into a completely user-driven product model because that's the competitive space we were playing in. We either needed to adapt or we were going to die. Um, so we did that. We ran it. We iterated. It was a lovely project to be a part of. Uh, and I think it was something like three months later or four months. It was so successful. It was actually ranking higher in SEO than the core product and the core brand. So I guess that was the wonderful part of this project. And then the bad part of a corporate bureaucratic risk-averse company is that they actually came back and asked us to, to take it out of SEO and they shut down the pilot because it was ranking higher than the core product. But that was just simply, like I said, it was 10 years ago. It's just an indication that the business was simply not ready for that. They didn't know how to handle that. So that's a, that's a great example there of a project which um, didn't have the emperor's assent. Yeah? The emperor of the organization is the CEO or the chair of the board. And this project obviously had some form of assent from somewhere in the management structure, but somebody else who had more power in the management structure turned around and gazumped the other person and said, you're not going to destroy my business and upset my numbers because what they weren't after was the outcome for the organisation. They were after somebody in the tiered management there. And so that's a really interesting project to go think about. It performed, it worked, it was successful, but it didn't leave the overall culture of the organisation, which was some people currently had power and they were going to use that power to go and actually kill anything that might have threatened them regardless if it might have been in the worst interest of the organisation. So the project died. Is that what happened? It did. It just got shut down, basically. Um, I, I think it comes down to, I mean, you touched on a good point there, because it is about, uh, I guess, braveness. Is that a word? Courage? So it is about courage. It is about thinking about the future and being willing to ride the dip that comes with that. But, I mean, I do understand why it got shut down as much as I hated it, because the business readiness wasn't there and the impact across the business, sales, customer care, go-to-market, all of those teams need to get ready for something like that. And that's a very large-scale undertaking. And that's a very important thing, knowing that you might be able to do something where you move very quickly and that you come up with something that's very innovative and gets bite in the market. But if it's going to upset the whole organisation, it may the organisation may not be ready to go and actually seize that opportunity. So there were there, there may have been some very good governance in, in that scenario. It was unfortunate for the project, but there may have been some good governance. There may have been some Machiavellian games. It's hard to know, and so thank you for sharing that. So, Andrew, we've spoken a bit about your signage and communication program, about the works that you're doing. What other examples are there of projects that have absolutely rocked and have helped the organisation go achieve its goals? Well, I'm going to name names. This is my former employer, Land Transport Authority in Singapore. We was doing a, a new line for Singapore called the Circle Line. We had two stations, one which was in a very significant location right downtown beside the uh, Singapore Art Museum. The other one was in a much more suburban location next to the National Stadium. We put forward a proposal to do a design competition for the two stations, something that had never been done before in Singapore. We actually run a, an international design competition to have the, the design put forward. We run it in association with the Singapore Institute of Architects and to cut a long story short, because running architectural competitions is a lot of work, a very small firm called WOHA won both of the stations. And at the time, I think people would may know, to know, know the name now, but at the time they were a small 12-person office. My CEO asked me, he said, are you sure, Andrew, that these guys can handle it? Because at the time they were a 12-person architectural practice and we'd normally deal with architects that were in the hundreds and two hundreds. 
I wrote into their contract that if I ever felt that they were falling behind, they had to team up with a much bigger firm. Um, and that was my risk management to, to that approach. I never got close to exercising that. And the two stations, if you've ever been to uh, Singapore Stadium and Brass Brassa, uh, they won multiple design awards, both locally and internationally, and really broke the mold for what a good transit station meant. And of course, then the subsequent stations from that, the other designs were looking up to that and being inspired by it, even though they weren't being done by design competitions. I had no idea that you're involved in the acceleration of Woha's practice there. For those of you that don't know Woha, we'll put a link in uh, with the podcast and the follow-up. But as a practice, they're probably doing more that's working out how to have green buildings, sustainable buildings. They've built a whole range of sustainability metrics that talks about what is the percentage of uh, green space that's on the outside of the building rather than if it was just a plot of land somewhere. They talk about energy efficiency. and everyone gets a start somewhere and to hear that you might have been as part of that that's fantastic because you know without that small studios don't become big studios so that's a very sensible outcome. yeah you, you i could just tell the talent in uh, richard and munn some right from the outset and uh, they never disappointed you know it's really nice time to be working with them because they were the practice was just accelerating and i was working with them individually on a one-on-one -on -one basis so what was really interesting there was the organization wanted what these people had they worked out how to go put a risk strategy in place, which was, we like your ideas, but if you're failing behind, we're going to actually make sure that you then partner up with some people who've got some horsepower to go finish the project. The organisation was able to go get the win, the outcome that they were after, and they also managed their risk. And so that's a very interesting board-centred strategy there because you can go to the board and say, it's innovative, it's going to make a difference, it's going to be astounding, and we've worked out how you don't look bad if this doesn't go right. So I think that's ticks across all, all of those areas there. So, Michael, I wanted to go and ask you then because IBM about three or four years ago at a board level understood that there was a threat because there wasn't enough design in the organisation. They onboarded 1,500 designers in less than 12 months, probably the biggest hire of designers anywhere in the industry. Went from being one of the smallest uh, employers of designers into one of the largest employers of designers. And that was done because the board and the CEO knew that the experience economy was marching well and truly at a, at, a, at a heavy pace and that they would probably be left behind if they didn't get there. So you're in the stages of building culture, you're actually uh, trying to work out how to change the direction that the ship's going. How do you think that's performing for you? Do you think that the organisation is beginning to get that that change is necessary or are they rejecting the fact that you're trying to go and actually get them to be more human-centred and more have more empathy for their customers? I think as a whole, um, IBM has been really good with embracing design as part of the practice, part of our toolkit. Um, like I mentioned, there's a lot of resources that we develop our own practice, say enterprise design thinking and a lot of these other offering. But in terms of how those practice being trickling down from global to a local level, it takes a bit of time. And the funny thing is, um, is design is actually part of our DNA. If you go to go down that hallway, there's a uh, quote on the wall. It say, "Good design is good business." So it was hidden in our history, but it's taking a bit of time to being embraced again. And now I think we are at the. If you talk about the envision scale, we probably at the second and third, or closer, moving into third. And I think that's really important that uh, IBM's an example of an organization that got uh, seduced by technology, but the organization is about business machines. And if the new business machine is about it, the experience of the customer, maybe that's the systems and the machines that you need to be focusing on. So it's a, it's a very courageous thing to have a CEO that comes out and says, we're, we're deficient. We need to employ lots of people. We need to work out how do we go bring in design thinking throughout the organisation. I know I, I see Michael through social media forever going around and running um, uh, sprints, design sprint camps, 
competitions for people to begin to understand how to think in the minds of the end customer, not in the minds of the manager who actually commissioned the project. It takes a long time and it actually has to be something that organisations are brave with. And so I think as we go across our panel here, you know, we've got IBM who are out and proud of the fact that they're in transition. And I think that's a really important thing. doesn't mean that they're not experts in the projects that they're working on, but they're trying to go and actually transform an entire organisation. And if you go think of the things that you actually touch, which might have been a technology or a system that IBM had put together, it's going to be a better system in the future because it's actually coming from a design-centred approach. If we go look at the MTR, you're doing lots of work which is actually helping to have stories and conversations with your, with your customers to make sure that they understand what's going on. We look at New Balance, that New Balance is, uh, had to go work out how to tell a story which was actually that we have heritage, which is English heritage, and try to stop being so much of a chameleon and actually just become authentic to the brand and themselves. And they got great results there. And if we go into the world that Seeker Asia's in, Seeker's trying to work out how to go take all of these different cultures and experiences, work out how to harvest the best out of them and bring them into a amalgam which actually becomes an even stronger entity there. So what I've been trying to go do is show that even the organisations who seem to be leaders aren't necessarily perfect. And if we were Olympic athletes, we'd all be trying to work out how to go do our personal best. But in business, you think you're number one and you're just going to stay there and you won't talk about the fact that might be something that you need to improve. So having that idea that somebody else is also going to actually work out how to match your experience, match the design systems that you've put in place, is actually a great challenge for you to continue to improve rather than something just to turn around at the board and say, mission accomplished, because it's never accomplished. There's a great, uh, there's a great concept out in, the, out in the world that came from Patricia Seibold. I think it was in 99 or 98. It was in a book called customer.com and it's called The Satisfaction Equation. And if there's one thing I'd really like you to take away from, uh, from this talk is that you understand how the satisfaction equation works. And it is that to be satisfied your experience has to be greater than your expectation. It's pretty simple. That's a great thing when you get something that's a rule of thumb. Now the problem that happens there is that the MTR turns around and puts a notice in the escalator that tells me that they're repairing it and next time I go up I want a better story because my expectation was that you're telling me this all the time. I, I want the next thing, I want the new thing. And that's where the real challenge comes in. It's not working out how to go on, say, the tennis tour and be one of the 200 players that's in a Grand Slam. It's working out how to win the Grand Slam that's important. And so I think for all of you as you're trying to work out how do you get that you've got design integral in your organisation, that's only the beginning of the game. From there on, it's working out how to continually do personal bests. And that's why you need to have tools that continually go back to the board and give them reference that there's a, there's a challenge out there. Somebody else is trying to go and take that mantle, that position that you've taken, and then working out how to have the dialogue with them so that you can work out how to be on that continual improvement, continual satisfaction that's out there. So I'm going to throw across to you, the audience, and see if you've got some questions for our experts here. And uh, it could be that some people in the audience even have some answers themselves because there's some pretty smart people here. So who wants to start, kick us off with some questions? Please. Myself as a product designer, I've been in the, in the industrial design background for quite a while. I have been uh, helping my customers, uh, mainly in product development. But now you you know product development is not uh, solely in product. It's all it's also about branding, market positioning, everything. So this is a holistic uh, sec, uh, uh, section I have to, to do, uh, help my customers. The other thing is, um, now we all know that um, design is important. We really want to conduct this message to the public that the design is nothing, it's not only about athletics and you know, great something fancy and so on. But in fact, this is a very um, effective uh, tool for uh, problem solving and not only for uh, design project, but also for company and whatever, and, and management level. So I just want to ask, 
how how we're going to conduct this message to a, a vast uh, public about the, the, the importance of having design as the uh, the, the tool. So let me see if I can summarize it to you. If I told you eight out of the ten most valuable companies in the world are driven by design, does that answer the question for you? So just think about that. Eight out of the ten most valuable companies in the world have design at their core. Ten years ago, none of the ten most valuable companies in the world had design at their core. So there's been a change in the order there. And those companies that have actually decided to go and meet the human need to go actually deliver new products and innovation that actually meets new customer needs have taken away, they've, they're bigger than banks, they're bigger than the petrochemical industry and now if you want to see the people who are leading the economy, they're organisations that have design in their core. I don't think there's much more that you need to say than that. How about the rest of the panel? What do you think? Do you think there's other education? Or do you think the idea of just reminding people that the biggest, strongest, most powerful economic, you know, workhorses in the world are driven by design? I think that probably says that design is important. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure if I've I've, I've totally understood um, that the, the question or point being made. But if if I have, the way I would look at it is that for us. Yeah, we're we're in, we're all involved in design. You know, we we walk into a space and we're immediately noticing details in the environment around us, and maybe what you know, where does this carpet design come from? But yeah, you know, there's a vast, vast, vast population out there that will walk through an MTR station and they don't give it a second thought as long as it gets them from A to B or the shoe is comfortable. So, you know, great design isn't necessarily somebody sitting there going, this is you know, incredible design and looks fantastic. It could just be very functional and fulfills their needs. So great design has, has met their needs and requirements and they're not even necessarily realizing interacting with design. So in some shape or form, design impacts everybody's lives but not everybody is necessarily sort of into design or sort of thinking about design. People will follow brands because their friends have it or they want to be like that. Um, but, but, but why? You know, it's, it's like us as New Balance. I mean, we're dealing with, I think there's around 3,000 parasite brands that look like New Balance stores in China alone um, that, that, are able to execute a lot of things that we're executing quite effectively. Now, people are going in there because they want to be part of something, want to be part of a brand, may not be able to afford it, but for them, they're not necessarily thinking about design, they just know they want something. Um, so I think it's it's multifaceted, if, if I've understood it correctly. If I think back to the periodic table in chemistry, it used to have 20 odd elements in it, then it got 50 elements, got 80 elements, up over 100 elements. And I think that's what we've seen happen to the design industry, that traditional design disciplines and craft might have been those first 20. We're probably up at the stage that now there's 50 elements that make up what the design industry is, or maybe the 80. And those things are often, they're post-artifact. They're not things that you can touch or feel. They're experiences. And so it becomes very difficult when our language around design is an artifact-based language to then be able to give credence to the experience that's in there. You know, the fact that there was an artifact on the escalator at the MTR was what I can talk about, but it was actually the experience that they were communicating with me was the emotion or the outcome that I took away. So was it actually important that they went and did the experience or was it the artwork that was important? From an awards perspective, we'd actually go and look at the experience rather than the artwork because the experience is harder to achieve. Well, I just sound to that. A lot of in my world, the very best design is silent. When we succeed, people don't notice it. There's a lot of hard work goes into making people move through space, move through very busy stations seamlessly. And yet it's never, hardly ever appreciated that thing. But you wait until we switch off an escalator and people turn a corner and expect that escalator to be running up and it's not, it's hoarded off. Suddenly, that, and that's what brought about those, those graphics, is because suddenly was interrupting that, that smooth flow of the station. So to me, that is one of the things about design is that the very best design sometimes in, in architecture is silent. Is there another question? Well, 
know, I think you hit a point just now talking about the varieties of design. The periodic table analogy is great. I'm going to use steal that from you. But the whole point around the de very definition of design has been, you know, reframed. You know, from a very craft-based design to a system design of systems, multiple elements. And therefore, when it gets less tangible, it's also getting, number one, more difficult to define and communicate value of because it's getting more abstracted and getting more complex. Second piece is it's getting also more difficult to, in a way, measure the impact of it or more metrics is needed to measure the impact of it. So I don't know whether anyone has any, you know, any of the uh, our colleagues on the panel has any insights on how do you better communicate and better communicate the measurement of impact of design. I thought it was interesting, Bob, when, when you mentioned about the measurement, which was, are we selling stuff? That's a pretty good measure, I think. You know, it's like the applied design's been in there. We've looked at the store. We've looked at the product. We've looked at the packaging. But are we selling more stuff than we were before? That That's one of the ultimate one, ultimate measures. But then you get organisations that don't have something that is so demonstrably obvious as, as how many you know uh, packages are you selling. I think, Maxi, for yourselves with the online space of, you know, uh, have you got more people engaged to go through the successful journey of applying for a job or seeking out what their next job might be? That might be a little bit harder to go and actually put metrics behind it, but no doubt you're experts at that. Actually, we've got a lot of metrics around those sorts of very easy, easy to qualify and measure um, components of the product chain, the value chain, and so on. That's the easy stuff. Um, and those are kind of ingrained and embedded right throughout our product. Uh, the hard part, as you say, is when you start to look beyond that, when you start to look at the whole experience, the soft measures, the engagement, the emotional attachment. And I think it comes down to depending what your product actually what is it you're trying to do, right? What is it you're trying to sell? What is it you're trying to hook people into? What is it you're trying to engage them with? For us, our product is very much not about just coming to us and finding a job. So as we evolve, it's, you know, the whole kind of proposition is about really kind of the value chain throughout somebody's life, somebody's career and somebody's life. Now, a lot of those components are about emotion. A lot of those components are about supporting somebody through finding a new job, being happy in that job, not being happy in that job, getting fired, you know, thinking you want a change. Of, and those things require those hard measures, searching, applying, you know, getting applications, getting a job. Um, but it's the softer parts. It's how do you measure that engagement? How do you actually manage somebody's emotional state that then translates into loyalty uh, preference, first choice, all of those things which eventually come back into dollars. So it doesn't matter what company you work for or who you are, uh, I think the best way to demonstrate that uh, is to actually find that hook, do something through design that shifts the needle somehow. Whatever needle is, is meaningful and relevant to the decision makers, the board, whoever, the people that hold the purse strings get that proof, then build on it, and then build on it, and then pretty soon, I guess, the value of design speaks for itself. But that, I've, I've just found that's the best hook. And what you were talking about, Mark, with eight, of, eight out of the 10 biggest companies now being driven by design, I think that's a good conversation to open the door. But very quickly after opening the door and getting the right executive's attention by talking about things like that, you've got to be able to back it up uh, with sort of like proof of the pudding. Get those measures, get the results. So um, who's got a, the, a next question for us? So I'm sure you can see some comparison talking about how uh, designs can be done to the so I think technology went through a similar path. So not all the companies were always CTO years ago. Now we see CTOs in in the boardroom. Some direct report to CEO. If technology is a competitive advantage organization, some CTOs really just report to CFO and they're considered cost center. So what are the examples of design actually being in the boardroom that you guys have seen, and how do they actually pan out in the whole world of dynamics? Because we are looking at, looking at the board from the outside, but actually, you know, we think they are the right 
So I'm going to give you a, a challenge question. If you can see if you can name the organisation who made this statement. Break things and fail fast. Who was the organisation? Move fast and break things. Okay, all right. There you go. All right, okay. Gee. I, come on, it's like knowing song lyrics and you can't, it's, it kind of went like, you know. So, all right, so move fast and break things. Okay, so, so that was Facebook, but only for six months. And then Facebook worked out that they had to make things that were useful. So there's a whole bunch of companies that will never find their way into the Grand Slam or never find their way to the Olympics. They're going to be the people who believe that that idea of moving fast and breaking things is still the mantra. And then there's the people who have picked up on the current technique and they've understood that it's actually about meeting customer needs. And they're going to be having a look around the market and they're going to be turning around saying, I want to be like those other fast-moving companies. I want to be an accelerating company, not just somebody who's resting on laurels. And I think that's a very interesting time that we're in because a company that wants to adopt what are new techniques to go and uh, achieve acceleration in, in performance, that they're likely to turn around and actually say, we want to be user-centred, we want to be customer-centred, and we want to make sure that we've got empathy to our clients' needs. The ones that are actually struggling are probably resting on their laurels and are saying, maybe we're not ready to change yet. And I think the example that Hamaxi gave was people who had the capacity to move fast and to give a better experience, but they didn't culturally weren't ready for it. So I suppose it's a matter of working out where you are on the curve there, and not everybody is born a champion. And, and, and by default, all stocks around, they are born like that. Um, if not all of them succeed, or always succeed, then they tend to remain with this world. But right now, I think uh, with Google School, I work with IBM, so I deal with old school companies, uh, meaning the problem existed 20 years, 30 years, way before design was uh, considered uh, a driver. Uh, but right now, when I think the key challenge that we are really trying to narrow down to is we have enterprises have been looking after enterprise value for 30 years. They've been going through the curve of investing in technologies, HR, many other things. And now they're trying to figure out how to invest in design rights. Because everybody knows design is important, but they don't know whether they are making the right investment or how to go about it. I think that is the real challenge that we must face. And, and then we need to look at what successful enterprises can So I'll take you back in medical history because there's one thing in medical history that saved more lives than anything else. And what's interesting about it is that it's so simple. And it's called washing your hands. Okay, before we had basic sanitation, people were dying left, right and centre from all sorts of diseases. And then you brought in something as simple as basic sanitation and you stopped a whole range of unnecessary deaths. And the reason I bring that up is it could be just actually talking about are we doing what the customer needs gives you that transformative change rather than turning around saying we've cured cancer. Because 100% of the population are probably having a bad experience. Only a few people are having a, a particular bad experience. So maybe the wholesale change that you've got is actually to be thinking about how do we do things which are customer-centric rather than company-centric. And simply by making that simple change, maybe you've got the effect that happens with sanitation. I think it has to be customer-centric. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us could survive um, if there wasn't somebody, people buying our products, using our services, going through our, our stations you know, efficiently and effectively. Yeah, so, I, so it has to be people and consumer centric. Um, I, I think everything, every, everything. Because you've got to remember those stations that Andrew was telling us about that had no toilets and weren't designed for people who had mobility challenges. So they made the experience so much better by putting some toilets in there and helping people who've got mobility challenges didn't change the rolling stock, they didn't change the tiles in the place. It was actually some really obvious things that then gives a wholesale lift. And I think sometimes we try to go find something which is 
really complicated because we can't realise that maybe it was a simple thing that we were doing that was causing the biggest problem. So I'd, I'd try to go find something very simple that has big effect first and then try and find those 1% solutions at a later stage. Building toilets is a big part of my day job. And, and if you go through Central Station right now between Hong Kong and, and Central Station, there's a whole new bunch of toilets going in right now um, to address that basic need because it's one of our busiest stations and believe it or not, it was built without public toilets in, in the Central Station at least. The, the Hong Kong site did have it. Who would have thought the chief architect says, I build toilets, yeah? So, the, so that's, a, that's one of those revelations. Sometimes it can be just doing what seems to be quite basic that provides the biggest lift. But our heads want to do something complex. We don't want to do something basic because maybe the basics are, what are what's going to get you there. And, you know, I suppose as you go through the various um, uh, design thinking camps, uh, the design sprints, sometimes it's that quick win which makes the big difference. So always remember that sanitation saved more lives than applied cancer research has ever saved. Next question. Really good questions. Um, from a design practice perspective, I think what I would have, if I had the permission, and I say permission because of the, the scale and complexity of the organization, right? It wasn't an organization where you could just go and make stuff happen because it influenced a lot of different teams, PNL lines, those sorts of things. But if I had that permission, the capacity, I think taking a design thinking approach, a more service design approach would have been the way to start. So first going out and looking at what's happening in go-to-market, telesales, customer care, uh, what our salespeople were doing on the road, what tools they had. Interestingly, later on, we were actually uh, asked to change what our sales force were using. Uh, we built a whole sort of iPad app to equip them with the right kind of tools to go out and have the conversations with businesses that they were selling the product to. It was a marketplace again, so B2B and B2C. So I think if we took a service design approach first, then it would have set us up for an easier road to actually make the types of changes we were talking about. Compromising design, well, that's a really hard one. Probably to just take the brand on a step change journey, because the only way we could kind of again, create the space for this to be a success was to completely abandon the existing brand and, and start afresh. But I think if we looked at more evolution rather than revolution, it, it might have been more successful. But again, I don't think evolution would have worked in this instance. It would have just been too slow. And in the meantime, it wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have adapted fast enough if we took that approach. And how about we go one more question before we wrap up? is important. What experience I have in the online consumer industry, and they're very discreet and there's very, very ROI and numbers driven. So trying to bring design the boardroom for my kind of lesson that I've learned the first time when I read from the creative and UX approach when you're presenting new ideas to revamp the website or even the live casino interface is don't present design first. That's one of the lessons that I've learned. What we've done is to take out snapshots of the good user experience from competitor screenshots and use mastermind rally in the boardroom. This is the best for you good user experience of computer user. You don't show any of your work and you tell the audience boardroom, do you want to change? Just get them feedback from them first and then yes let's change then you see whether they are ready to change not just say yes we want to change when you ask them let's change everything just die down apps i absolutely love that because it's using a dating strategy 
Okay, there are some people you just shouldn't date because they don't want to be in a relationship with you, the type of relationship that you want to have. If you're having to convince boards that they need to have design, you've probably got the wrong organisation and you're wrong, and you're in the wrong relationship. Okay, there's enough people out there who get what design is. They know how to leverage it. They know what to do with it. Get in a relationship with them with some people who have similar values and a similar concept of the future. I love the idea that you've got a technique to go and actually flush them out, which is if you don't want to meet me on the type of future that I'm imagining, I'm not going to tell you this. And so that's a really good technique. But the idea that everybody will do this is rubbish. You've got to find people who have a shared vision, who have a shared desire to go somewhere faster into the future. And if you've got that match there, you've got a great opportunity to go and actually provide high value to have a really rewarding relationship. That is, unless somebody else in the organisation chokes the process. But you've got to find out that it's a well-set position. So it's a great strategy. Go find out whether they're ready for the type of journey that you're going to go it's on. It's interesting how... You, what you just told, the story that you just told, I was just talking to the team earlier today, like it really depends on the the stage of that conversation, right? If it's too early when you're still trying to paint a picture, trying to paint a roadmap, paint the strategy, diving too deep into the design is, is just going to be the wrong approach, right? I think that's when we come to boardroom design, enterprise design, Really, that conversation or how we look at design or conveying the value of design changed so much that you can't just, yeah, go into choosing colors and 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 you know just talking about from a traditional designer point of view. There's some pretty good strategies there. So thank you for that input, ladies and gentlemen in the audience here. Thank you for coming along this evening and uh, asking questions, listening to our panelists. Please thank our panelists with a huge round of applause.